Space, the final frontier. This is the Observer's Notebook, the official podcast of the Association of Lunar and Planetary Observers. Its mission to explore the solar system, to seek out new observations and data, to boldly go where no podcast has gone before. And now the host of the Observer's Notebook, Tim Robertson. Hello and welcome to episode 76 of the Observer's Notebook, the official podcast of the Association of Lunar and Planetary Observers. I'm Tim Robertson, the host of the podcast and also the coordinator of the training program within the ALPL. Thank you for downloading and listening. The Association of Lunar and Planetary Observers collects and analyzes observations of various solar system bodies and associated phenomena and publishes detailed reports concerning these bodies in its quarterly publication, The Journal of the Association of Lunar and Planetary Observers. Uh, also lovingly known as the Strolling Astronomer. This podcast depends upon donations from you. That's right, you who's listening to it right now. Our listeners to keep it alive. If you enjoy what you hear, you can donate to it via Patreon. You can give as little as $1 a month. If you feel even more generous, for $5, you receive early access to the podcast before it goes public. And for a monthly donation of $10, you receive a copy of the Novice Observer's Handbook. If you feel even more generous, $35 a month, you receive producer credits on the podcast and a one-year's membership to the ALPL. Please, if you really enjoy the podcast, we could use your support. You can go to patreon.com, that's P-A-T-R-E-O-N.com slash Observer's Notebook. If you'd like to join the ALPL, membership begins at only $18 a year. You can find out more at alpl-astronomy.org. You can find the ALPO on Facebook. Just search for ALPO Astronomy. And yes, this podcast also has a Facebook page as well. Just search for The Observer's Notebook. If you enjoy what you hear on the podcast, please subscribe. That way you'll never miss another episode of The Observer's Notebook. And now episode 76 with John Barentine from the International Dark Sky Association. All right, I'd like to welcome everybody back to the Observer's Notebook podcast. Today we have a special guest from the International Dark Sky Association, John Barentine. Welcome to the podcast, John. Hi, Tim. Thanks for having me today. Yeah, now before we get started, why don't you just give everybody a little bit of background about yourself? Mm -hmm. Well, uh, I come from astronomy originally as an amateur for many, many years and a professional for almost as many uh, formerly, my background is in physics and astronomy, and I trained up through the PhD level. And about the time that I was finishing that up and uh, having not planned for an academic career, I was looking for something to do and landed in a very interesting place uh, working for all, all in the, uh, you can imagine in the world, uh, for a nonprofit organization that is dedicated to trying to fight for the night and keep the skies dark. Now, are you still uh, so that we can all continue to share in in astronomy? Go ahead. Now, are you still an active astronomer? Uh, only as an amateur, and occasionally helping out on something that, that might get published, but uh, not very much anymore. Okay, so how did you get involved with the IDA? Uh, I became aware of IDA years ago because, of course, they're headquartered out here in Arizona, which is where I am from. But I had never become involved with the organization until I came to work here. 
And there was just a, a fortuitous timing around the time that I was finishing up my degree uh, that there was a staff position opened here that was really well aligned with sort of what my interests were at the time. Uh, and where I was uh, doing my degree in Texas, I had been working locally on some light pollution issues there uh, and realizing that I was sort of up against the limits of what I knew about the subject. And so for me, it was both an education as well as a, an opportunity to do something good, hopefully, for the world. Now, you're on staff with the idea. How large is the staff? We're tiny. We have uh, eight full-time employees and one half-timer. Okay. So uh, people are sometimes surprised when they show up here and they think we're going to you know, have a staff of 100 people in our own building and everything, and it's a very small operation by comparison. Okay. Well, you, you, the, the organization focuses on light pollution, eliminating light pollution. Well, we might have some listeners out there that never even heard that term. Give us a, a rundown of exactly what is light pollution. Right. Um, I think most people, if they have heard that term, they think about sky glow, which is the phenomenon where light that's on the ground at night is either aimed into the night sky or incidentally reflects off of surfaces like buildings and roads and end up in the sky and makes it difficult to see the stars. It's sort of that cloud of light that hangs over a city. My own definition is more expansive than that, and it includes lots of effects on the ground. And the, the definition I use is that light pollution is any kind of adverse impact of the use of artificial light at night. So that not only includes sky glow, but it considers things like light trespass, uh, the tendency of uh, you know light emitted on one property to uh, fall on another, a glare from lighting, which may make things difficult for people to drive at night. Um, you know, these are all sort of examples of what we would consider light pollution because there's some impact that's not the intended function of the light. Okay, playing devil's advocate here. Uh, why is light pollution bad? I mean, isn't it nice to see where you're going at night and illuminate the outside of your house and you go into a shopping center? Right, I, and I agree with everything you just said, and I don't think that our those views are mutually opposed to each other. Um Oftentimes when IDA enters the conversation, sometimes there's a reaction from people that assumes that our role is to turn the world's lights off to solve this problem. And that is absolutely not the case. Um, we believe that there is a place for those legitimate human needs for artificial light at night to exist peacefully alongside our desire to protect the nocturnal environment in as natural a state as possible. Uh, and of course, you know, I could go into the, the benefits beyond that, um, but we think there are good reasons to maintain that environment as best we can in its natural state. But we also think that there's a happy medium there where we can do that and also provide for every a single one of those needs that people have. Now, how, how bad is light pollution right now, would you say? I think that light pollution is very underestimated as an environmental pollutant and an overall an environmental situation. And I think it's because uh, the rise has been so gradual that many people haven't noticed the extent to which it exists now. We have research indicating that about 80% of the people who live in the entire world are impacted by light pollution. Wow. And if we, if we use as our, our metric uh, impacts to the night sky, which is a proxy for what's going on on the ground, then that figures about 80%. If you live in North America or Europe, that figure becomes 90% of population. 
And it's a, it, we're just an increasingly urbanized society, not only here, but elsewhere in the world. And uh, most often with urbanization comes a lot of light pollution. Um, and so more than half of the people who live in the world have lost the ability to see the Milky Way at night from where they live. And that was something that was once common to everybody who lived anywhere in the world before there was electric light. So again, if we use that as sort of an indicator of where the situation is, uh, it's very serious. And we're finding that there are many more um, effects or, or negative impacts associated with all this light beyond just the ability to see the night sky. Uh, there are known impacts to ecology, public safety, crime, energy security, um, possibly even human health. Hmm. So there's something in this for more than just people who are astronomy minded. It's really, we're finding that it touches on a lot of aspects of on our lives uh, beyond whether or not we can see the night sky. Okay. Well, let's take a step back and talk about the uh, International Dark Sky Association. What's its mission? Mm -hmm. Our mission is to preserve that nighttime environment I was talking about earlier. Um, but our mission statement is that we do that through the promotion of responsible outdoor lighting. So from the very beginning, um, the way we are oriented is to work with the lighting industry rather than simply oppose it or try to work against it uh, in some fashion. Uh, that was one of the values of our founders from the very beginning who said that we were more likely to achieve success if we built bridges rather than tried to burn them down. Uh, so from the start of the organization in 1988, we have worked with the lighting manufacturing community uh, on the supply side of the problem uh, to make better uh, light fixtures for all kinds of applications. And I think we've achieved some degree of success in that, at least in the American market. Okay. Uh, but simultaneously, we work on the demand side. We're trying to change the relationship that human beings have with artificial light at night, not to eliminate it from our environment, but we think that if people are more mindful about those uses, that they will discover that they need less light all around to achieve the same goals. And if we become mindful, we waste less. If we waste less, then we need less. And therefore, coming from the demand side, now we're in synergy with the supply side. People's needs are met. We keep that light out of the night sky as much as possible. And in principle, that's how we ultimately uh, achieve our mission. Great. Now, are there goal? Are there set goals for the IDA? Um, there are, we operate with a strategic plan. We're working in different parts of the world. So we're not just a domestic organization. Uh, we're finding that we have to increasingly target our efforts internationally, uh, to more specific countries where we think we have a better chance of, of, uh, you know, moving the needle as opposed to trying to serve every population in every country. Um, you know, we're, we're a relatively small organization as nonprofits go. So we have to be careful about where we put our resources. A lot of that is in North America and Europe. That's where a lot of our members are located. Um, it's also where in historical times, the problem has been growing the fastest. But I will tell you that uh, we're seeing a trend now where in the developed world, uh, it's slowly beginning to decelerate a bit. It's not growing at the rate that it was a decade or two ago. Right now, what concerns me the most is the rate of growth of light pollution in the developing economies of the world. So places like sub-Saharan Africa, uh, interior China, parts of India, where they're experiencing rates of growth that are double digit year on year. 
uh, and that's of course tied up in a lot of economic development uh, goals. And by you know, other organizations are working at this at the same time. Sometimes we're at cross purposes on that. Uh, so we're finding that we're having to adjust our strategy to align with the fact that now the the significant growth in the problem is no longer in the West. It's really in the rest of the world. Wow. Yeah. Cause that makes sense. Expanding countries, you get more people, more housing, more shopping centers, more everything and more light. So absolutely. That's, 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 and, and, you know, we don't want to be opposed to economic development mm-hmm. by any means. Um, you know, the same way that we think we can supply all of the needs that people have in lighting in the West. I think we can also meet development goals and promote things like rural electrification without the necessary consequence of that being a great uh, growth in new light that it wasn't there previously. Okay. Now, can you give me a little history? You said the organization started in 88, I believe. Mm-hmm. And how, yes. where, how it started and then how it's gotten to where it is today. Mm-hmm. We were founded by two astronomers here in Tucson, Arizona. One of them was a professional and the other was an amateur, but they were both concerned about the uh, rate at which light was growing over the city of Tucson and how it impacted their, uh, their hobby and their profession respectively. Mm-hmm. Um, so they formed IDA in 1988 and it was very, um, it, it was looking beyond the short term and the immediate problem of Tucson, not only to the United States, but it has been the international dark sky association from day one out of a belief that this was not a problem that was confined to this city or state or country, but that it was truly international. Uh, and we've grown from a, a small operation run, uh, at, like a home business, uh, at sort of that scale up to an organization that now, has uh, just short of 4,000 members in dozens of countries worldwide. We have a number of chapters and sections throughout the world. Uh, We've really diversified the audience that we speak to, and in turn, that's brought us new uh, constituencies of supporters. So, you know, in the early days, it was a lot about astronomy and not so much about the other topics that I've mentioned. But uh, gradually, we've come to see the seriousness of the impacts in those other areas and it's not that we will ever discard astronomy or stargazing as uh, one of the main concerns that we have uh, to make sure that you know that can go on into the future without being unduly harmed by light pollution. Um, but the way we look at it now, it's one item in a portfolio of many. And that helps uh, increase the appeal of the organization beyond just the astronomy community. And I think that is crucial to a future in which we can envision uh, actually accomplishing our mission. Yeah, because the astronomy community is small, relatively speaking. And in order to make global changes like this, you really got to get the message out there to the right people. It's got to be a political message, probably, or city type thing to ordinances have to change. It is, and what we have found in the process of of gradually diversifying this message is um, I feel like there's really something in it for everyone. They can say, you know, I'm not concerned about the night sky, but uh, I'm concerned about the, I'm reading about all this news in the media about health and about how blue light affects us and causes disruption to the circadian rhythm. And, you know, what does that mean for my health? Uh, Or people who are very concerned about uh, adequate nighttime visibility in their communities in that when we have that visibility, it preserves public safety. 
uh, it makes it more difficult for criminals to operate, but many of the ways in which we light our cities are contrary to that. So some people become involved in this because they want to make their cities at night better. And they may not have any interest on, you know, what impact does that have on the night sky? Now, okay, let, let's talk about lighting. You said the different type of light. Well, are there good lights to have that would be more beneficial for uh, making the sky better? Yes, there absolutely are. And it, it goes back to what I mentioned earlier about being mindful about the ways that we use light because we think that if people think about it carefully, they'll realize it can be done differently and better, and it will not only prevent the pollution of the, the, the nighttime environment, but it will also, it'll cost less for one thing, and it will better target that light uh, and make it more useful. Uh, a lot of times when I, I give public talks, for example, I try to reduce our advice down to what came to be known as the four Ps, like the letter P, where that stands for the word proper. And the four Ps are proper place, time, amount, and spectrum. So what we want people to think about is designing lights, or if you're just the end user, like a homeowner, you know, when you go to a, a home improvement store, selecting the kind of lighting that uh, is really the, the correct lighting option for those things. And most of them are self-explanatory. Put the light where it is needed. Try not to let it spill beyond that. Make sure that it's the right quantity of light because we want safe performance of tasks at night. So, you know, you need to have enough light to see what you're doing. Uh, make sure that that light is there when people are present and they need it. And then to the greatest extent possible, turn it off when nobody is there and doesn't need it. Um, and that can be done with things like motion sensing switches. Uh, and then the last one, the, the proper spectrum aspect is the one that's unfamiliar to people, but they might have heard about this in some of the media coverage about the blue light. Uh, and that is that we know that not only is blue light most harmful to the wildlife that are around it, uh, it may have effects on human health, which we're still learning about, but it also is the color of light that scatters over the largest distances in the sky away from the source. So if you're in a city and you think, well, what I do here really only affects my neighborhood, and you're emitting a lot of this blue light, that light can scatter to distances of hundreds of miles away from your city. So that, and then maybe it's intruding into a place like a national park. And, and it's, it's inadvertent, but if we opted for more of those warm tones in the light and less of the blue, uh, we could reduce the impacts at those larger distances. So people just kept those four ideas in mind when they selected lighting. We could solve this problem truly overnight. Yeah, I know a lot of lighting they're changing in my particular city. They're going to LEDs. Now, what's mm -hmm. your opinion on that? LED is something that simultaneously could be the best and worst thing that ever happened to us. Um, you know, we're we're very agnostic about lighting technologies. We don't recommend a particular technology, so we don't say use LEDs, and we don't say don't use LEDs. Um, there are a lot of aspects of them that are very attractive. Uh, most people gravitate towards the energy efficiency, and so the lower cost of operation, especially let's say you're a municipality and you want to switch out all of your streetlights and you know save $100,000 a year on your electric bill, um, and uh, simultaneously by reducing your electricity consumption, if you're environmentally minded, you're also reducing your carbon footprint and all the things that go along with that. So uh, it's very attractive. It has um, some good 
characteristics to it. It's a very directional light source. So instead of having to, to blast light everywhere, you know, into your neighbor's yard in order to make sure you've hit your driveway nicely, uh, LED can be directed to the point that it really just covers the driveway and nothing else. And we've never been able to do that before. Um, the downside is that the color is usually not very good. Uh, it tends to historically now have a lot of the blue colors that we're so worried about. Uh, people are using it indiscriminately. They're not taking advantage of the, these better qualities of it. Uh, and so if it's not carefully implemented, it can be a disaster. Uh, and so part of what we're trying to do is say, you know, we're, we're certainly not telling you to not use LEDs, but just to be very careful in how you use them uh, in hopes that if people do it well, that this could actually make the situation better for light pollution. That's great. Yeah. I, I remember I was driving through, you talk about location of the lights and things like that. I was driving through mm -hmm. Colorado, some remote road in Colorado, and I noticed their light fixtures on the highway were huge. They were high, way, uh, high, real high in the sky, but they all had a dome over them, which directed the light. Because I, I remember driving down because I was con cognizant of light pollution and things, and I was able to mm -hmm. see stars next to the light fixture, which you can't mm -hmm. do. Just and someone was smart about how they designed the dome around the light and put the light so high up that it covered a larger area on the ground. It directed the light, and it was really, really interesting to see. Right, right. And simply by putting the shield on that light that ensured that the light was all aimed down, instead of throwing half of it into the night sky, now you're putting 100% of it on the ground. And in order to do that, you find that you need half of the electricity right. and the light that you did before. Yeah, that was very interesting. Yeah, I, I was at a star party this last Saturday night, and um, we were looking at a couple of the planets. And in the in the in the east, we had a little mountain range. But as soon as the sun went down, I went, "Oh, the moon's coming up soon." And I waited, and I waited, and I waited. Then I, I, I'm an astronomer. I should know when the moon comes up. Well, it comes up 10.45 at night. And I'm like, oh, that's a sky glow from the city next to us, mm -hmm. you know? And I was at an observatory. Mm -hmm. So it's just like, oh, wow. I mean, the, the, the impact of that on your uh, – for astronomers, yeah, we understand it. But just, you know, it, I, I was fooled by the sky glow, thinking it was mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. interesting. Mm -hmm. and, and, again, it's that gradual – uh, slow development of those light domes over the course of many years is why a lot of people don't even know that it's happening until suddenly they walk out one night and they say, you know, you used to be able to see the Milky Way from here. Right. You know, it, and, and they only realize it after it's gone. That's true. That's true. And you mentioned another thing about neighbor's lights. What do you do about a neighbor who's got a light that mm -hmm. shines into your backyard? Mm -hmm. <laughs> You know, it's, it's nearly a daily occurrence around here that we get phone calls from people, from the public that start out to the effect of my neighbor has a porch light. Mm -hmm. <laughs> it's, it's the most commonly encountered light trespass situation uh, that I think exists. And, and basically everybody has a feel for, for what is involved. Um, from our founding, as I said, you know, we worked with the lighting industry to try to make better light fixtures. We've also promoted the notion of civil dispute resolution. Oh, rather than litigating, uh, taking people to court, threatening to sue them, et cetera, as a way of, of dealing with this problem. Um, in very many cases, this works. I think people are increasingly, they're afraid to uh, confront neighbors mm -hmm. about problems um, for a variety of reasons, at least in our country. 
Um, but more often than not, when the approach is made, the the person with the light that's considered offensive, they will often say, I had no idea. I didn't realize this was impacting you. Uh, you know, if, if, if the, the neighbor with the complaint comes armed with some reasonable suggestions for how to resolve that, more often than not, people are willing to do it voluntarily. Um, that said, the long term, the way to promote this is by codifying it into law. And so we promote the idea that, uh, you know, if there's sufficient support in a community, you really should adopt a lighting ordinance that sets forth a set of standards and rules and norms that everybody understands what the expectations are. Uh, and that can also be used effectively to try to prevent uh, issues from turning into problems between neighbors. Now, have you been successful in that? It's a mixed bag. Um, you know, sometimes, as I said, the uh, you know neighbors uh, wanting to maintain good relations uh, will correct problems voluntarily. Um, we've been pretty successful in getting a lot of U.S. municipalities to adopt lighting ordinances, a number of which are pretty good. Um, the 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 problem with that aspect of this plan is um, that the enforcement of those laws becomes the weak link. Yeah. People feel good about putting the rules into place and say, okay, our work here is done. And then some time goes by and now you have to start enforcing that law and people become upset about it. Uh, in many cases, they'll say, you know, I'm just simply not going to follow this law. Um, many municipalities don't have anything like a code enforcement officer. Yeah. And their complaint or their enforcement system is complaint based. So if there's no one to go out and establish that a violation is happening, there's no way to use the law to correct a bad situation. So that's why I don't think that th that something like a lighting ordinance can exist by itself in a vacuum. You really have to have public education that follows in behind it uh, to maintain the sense of you know we did something good because people have to be continually reminded about what their obligations are. And it's also, like you said, the neighbor probably didn't realize that it was a problem who had the yes, light. Yes, exactly. So, yeah, mm -hmm. open up that dialogue. It's it's difficult sometimes, but I think having them issued a ticket from the city would probably be worse for their lighting. <laughs> well, yeah, and, and it's something that the cities don't want to right. do. They they do not want to get into the, the uh, idea of conflict resolution, especially when it's between neighbors. And I'll tell you, uh, Tim, out of my own experience, half the time when people call us and they say, I, you know, I have a problem with this neighbor's light and I don't know what to do. If you start asking some additional questions, you find out that sometimes the nature of the conflict goes beyond the lighting. Yeah. Uh, and the lighting is just one symptom of something bigger than that. And, and so, you know, you have to handle that very carefully. That's very true. Very true. Now, the IDA has international dark sky places. We do. What, what mm -hmm. is that? So our International Dark Sky Places program is a, a kind of a third-party certification. And so a, a familiar sort of thing to a lot of people in the U.S. Uh, to point to as an example is if you pick up almost any electronic or electrically powered gadget, you look on the back, you, you know, at least you used to see the little symbol UL, Underwriters Laboratories, that said, you know, this is a symbol, a service mark that says they've tested this thing rigorously and it meets a set of standards and it, you know, basically it won't burn your house down. Okay. Um, so what we are doing with our program, our certification program, is we establish a set of standards that we have come up with in conjunction with people like uh, municipal officials 
and um, lighting engineers, people in the conservation world. So think of parks and nature preserves and that sort of thing. And we put that out there as a set of standards. And if you as a place, whether you're a community or a park or similar, can show that you meet these standards, we will give you the equivalent of that mark that you can uh, say, you know, hey, you know, we've, we have applied to and been recognized under IDA's program. Uh, some people use it as a marketing tool to drive tourism. Uh, for some, it's an expression of uh, a community value or a quality of life uh, aspect. Uh, and it has grown tremendously in the just short of 20 years that it's existed. And as of right now, uh, we have a, a little over 120 places throughout the world that have received this designation. Oh, wow. How does one become one? How do you? The, the process of becoming one to, to kind of distill it down um, is preparing an application, which is a, a, it's a written document that describes the evidence of how you meet our program requirements. And then that goes through a couple of step review process within IDA. Uh, we have people who themselves previously successfully project managed these applications. So it's kind of a form of peer review. And they're trying to uphold the rigor of the program and the, and the integrity of it. So they're, they're looking for all the weaknesses and uh, you know, making sure that there's adequate public support uh, in the place that's applying for the status so that uh, it's, it won't be a flash in the pan. You know, it's the, the day that you're, you know, you, we announce a new dark sky place is a, it's a, it's a happy day for the people that, that went through this. Right. Um, but how do we make it last? How do we maintain the enthusiasm, especially uh, talking about the enforcement situation with the ordinances mm -hmm. when the, the rubber really hits the road and people have to start taking substantive actions to maintain these designations? Are they going to do that? Uh, and if you survive that scrutiny, then you're added to the honor roll, as it were, uh, and then that conveys to the place the right to use IDA's name and its logo in connection with its marketing, et cetera. Okay. Um, and it's just, it's kind of a badge of uh, pride, as it were. That's very interesting. Now, how can someone get involved with the IDA? There are plenty of ways to get involved. Uh, at the most fundamental level, um, you know, we're a member-supported organization at about the 80 or 85 percent level. Um, so we're we're always happy to to you know to be financially supported by people. Uh, but we have very many volunteer opportunities. We have a network of chapters throughout the U.S. states and in different countries in the world uh, that are branches of IDA locally. So they represent us. Um, so, if, you know, if you're interested in, in uh, being involved in these issues and speaking with some authority, that's a way to do it. Um, we have opportunities for people that don't want to quite go that far, but, you know, maybe they have a very local issue that they want to work on. We have resources that will support people in those efforts, whether it's dealing with a neighbor who has problematic lighting or whether it's trying to convince your community to uh, enact a lighting ordinance. We have resources that will you know, cover you on all those, uh, uh, those bases. Uh, and then for people that, that don't feel necessarily compelled to get involved directly or in a local issue, um, you know, we have a good social media presence. We have a great website. Just sharing the information. We're still in the phase of this issue as an environmental concern where we're raising awareness. And the very best thing that people can do uh, who want to be involved in some way is to help us get the word out. Just help raise public attention to this issue because it's one of the few cases that I can think of where we know what the solution to this problem is. We know very well what it is. All we have to do is achieve the critical mass in terms of the number of people who support solving the problem. 
That's 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 a really good point. It's not something like cancer where we don't know how to fix it. We know how to fix right. this problem. That's very good. That's that's right. And 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 as as a sort of a follow on to that, um, I, I think this this working on the subject would be attracted to anybody who is impatient. And I say that because if you look back in in environmental history, you know we we did manage to get over the worst of problems like air and water pollution, but it was a slow going process. You know if you if you stop polluting your river, it may take many years or decades to flush all of the pollutant through the system, right? You have to wait to see results. The best thing about light pollution, if there's anything good about it, is that when you act to solve it, when you take steps in a concrete way to do something about the source of the pollution, it's gone. It's, it right. leaves the environment at the speed of light so that if people wanted to see uh, quick results, it's entirely possible that the night sky, for example, could be made better in a short period of time uh, if people made a really concerted effort to change things. Yeah, I live in Southern California, and I remember when I was in school, grammar school, junior high, we had smog alerts. Mm -hmm. And there would be days when I would walk, get outside, walk to school, and my eyes would be burning, my throat would be burning, and you could see the brown muck in the air. Mm -hmm. I haven't I, – I, and it, it, that's gone. I, it it I worked, right? It took decades. I heard the word smog alert in Southern California, mm -hmm. in the LA area. So mm -hmm. it's a it's a pollution that we've done a good job in uh, eradicating. Yes, and that's our sort of our model for that is is looking at efforts like uh, you know reducing air and water pollution, soil pollution, that sort of thing, uh, endangered species uh, rehabilitation. Those policies and the social movements behind them were all tremendously successful. I see no reason why light pollution can't follow a similar trajectory. I agree. I agree. Now, what's membership cost? Uh, our basic membership is $35 a year. Uh, I, I can't tell you that you get a tote bag or a coffee mug or anything <laughs> like that, but you do ha really help the organization okay. because 100% of the, the donation goes to the cause. Uh, and, and there are levels that go on up from there. Uh, but, um, uh, that's been one of the things that we've adhered to is trying to keep that basic level as low as possible to try to bring as many people into this effort. Cause I, I think it changes a bit when people feel like they have skin in the game, even if it's a small amount of skin, right. uh, you know, that they can say, yes, I support this organization in a material way that's making the difference. Great. Um, do you have, uh, educational material available as well? We do. Uh, anybody who's interested in this should check out our website, which is darksky.org. And we have a number of resources that are freely available to the public. So whether or not you're an IDA member, uh, there are uh, uh, you know uh, informational brochures. We have a model lighting ordinance, for example, something that you can put in front of your decision makers. Uh, we have a lot of information that you can get to whether or not you're a member, uh, because we think that it's most important to have that information out there and put it into the hands of the people that are, are really going to need it. That's great. I'll put a link for the, for the association in the show notes too. So people can just read that and click on it and go there. Well, is there anything else you'd like to add? I, you know, the Tim, the only thing I would say in addition to what I've said is that, uh, as much as there is a lot of doom and gloom around this in the sense that it's, you know, really gotten out of our, control and it, you know, talking about it growing at such a rate and affecting so many people. Um, I, you know, I really do think that there's a possibility to turn this around. And the emphasis that I would put is on the notion that no act is too small to make a meaningful contribution. So 
that's as simple as saying, you know, hey, there's a light on my property that I thought about it really hard and decided that I really don't need it. I'm just going to turn it off. I'm not, you know. So uh, even something as small as looking around uh, your home and and looking for opportunities to uh, improve nighttime conditions will be good for you. It'll be good for the ecology in the place you live. It'll be good for the night sky. Uh, and every little bit helps so that people shouldn't feel helpless. Uh, but I hope that in the course of this conversation that they feel empowered to do something. Uh, and that, again, no act is too small. That's great. And it'll save them money. <laughs> Absolutely. Great. Well, John, how can everybody get a hold of you if they want to contact you? Uh, through the website is the best way to do it. Uh, if they want, they can contact me directly by email, which is my first name, John, J-O-H-N at darksky.org. Uh, especially if they're looking for something on the website and they can't find it, or they're looking for a resource that we don't otherwise uh, offer, we're always soliciting uh, in, uh, advice and questions and things for people who uh, have these needs that are not being addressed because we definitely want to be there to help them. Great. Well, John, I really want to thank you for coming on the podcast today. It has been a distinct pleasure, Tim. Thank you for having All me. Right. Well, that'll do it for this episode of the Observer's Notebook Podcast. I again want to thank John Barrington coming on and giving us a really good discussion about the International Dark Sky Association. We upload a new episode of the Observer's Notebook every few weeks. You can subscribe to us on iTunes. If you do, please rate and review us. I really appreciate it. You can also listen to us on iHeartRadio, SoundCloud, Spreaker, Google Play, Stitcher, and Amazon Echo. You can help support the podcast by donating to it via Patreon. You can give up to $35 a month, where you will receive one year's membership to the ALPO and producer credits on the podcast. And with that, I want to thank the producer of this podcast, Steve Seedentop, for his continued generous support. Thanks a lot, Steve. The link for Patreon, as well as the link for the ALPO, is in the show notes. You can contact me via email at cometman at cometman.net or on Twitter at, at ObserversNPPod. Until next time, my hope is you always have clear and steady skies. Thanks for listening.